Morning everybody, welcome. My name's Ian Smith, I'm Senior Minister here at Billericay Baptist Church. A thank you to Roger, Sally, Oliver and Annie for leading us in worship and they'll continue to do so um, after the sermon. Also uh, for my congregation of one, who's a regular attender, Dave Lodge, who once again is filming us uh, this morning, enabling us to re- reach you and also a much wider audience. So welcome to you all and my prayer is that you'll get much from the service and you'll hear God's voice through it as well. Uh, So change, there's a lot of things changing in the world and uh, depending on what kind of person you are, you'll either love change or you'll hate change or you maybe even, I'll go along with it but not necessarily like it. Um, Just to give you an indication that I'm getting on in years a little bit, I remember, I can actually remember us having three channels on our television and it was a black and white set and uh, we were fine with that. Snooker, watching snooker was a bit of a problem. Uh, we didn't really know which ball was what, but we tended to enjoy it anyway. And we didn't really think about anything else. We were just happy to have a TV. And then one day, Dad came home. He said, we, he said I've ordered a colour TV. And uh, we thought, oh, OK, great, that sounds good. But we weren't really that bothered. But it was going to be a change. And, of course, when he comes home... And the man came round and he fitted it all up and we had our three channels and you had to wait till midday, if you remember, before you could watch anything. Uh, we turned the telly on and all of a sudden it was in colour. And we realised what we were missing. And that was a good change. Now everything seemed much more clear. I certainly could understand snooker uh, a lot better and I could watch West Ham in colour. So everything was good. Other changes that I've gone through, uh, I remember being in the city and uh, broke in and used to be multiple European currencies and then uh, beginning of 1999 the euro uh, was introduced. So I went from, uh, if we were trading foreign shares and have to do a currency exchange from Deutschmarks to Sterling or French francs to Sterling, we no longer had to do that. There was a euro for most of the countries, not all of them. And we were a bit worried. We weren't sure how that was going to work. What would it mean for the currency? Would it mean that um, England would fall behind because we weren't in, in the euro? So there was a, it was a change and there was a bit of concern. But actually, uh, we've worked out okay and that was 1999. And we crossed that hurdle. Uh, not everyone liked that change, but change we did. And then, of course, the following year was, was the big year. It was the millennium, the year 2000. And do you remember all the people panicking? about that. Now, there's nothing you could do about that. The time was ticking on. But we were warned of computer failures. You know, the computers weren't going weren't to cope with that new date, and all our computers were going to crash. And that was taken really seriously. I remember being on the dealing floor, and they were paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds a day to software engineers who earned a fortune out of this stuff. We were told that planes potentially could fall from the, from the sky. And of course, uh, none of that really came to fruition. We, the millennium uh, came and it went and we've survived. And I guess in all sorts of life, we recognise, and especially uh, in the last three or four months, change is inevitable. And it's what we do with change as Christians that counts. And I'm going to uh, read to you uh, a verse that we've read before. Um, apologies, because it's something that we've... I've, I've brought before, but I'll I'll explain the reason why it's here again, so it keeps coming back. And of course, it's going to be from Isaiah 43, and uh, from verse 18 and 19. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? Lord, we pray that your word will speak to us this morning. I pray as I speak, Lord, uh, we'll hear your voice I thank you for your word and its truth, and I thank you that it impacts us now. It's alive and active, and it it changes us on a daily basis. Help us to understand 
what you're saying to us. Help us to embrace change if it's of you. Help us to see where you're doing new things. Help us to perceive what you're doing. As we open up your word, I pray Lord you'll speak to us in power. In Jesus' name. Amen. So that verse has been given to us over the last few years. And indeed, actually, I can remember being here many years ago and that verse uh, was around as well and given to us. And recently, the reason I'm bringing it again is because I was listening uh, to Lynn Green. Lynn Green is the, is the General Secretary of the Baptist Union. And um, I saw something that she said when she was addressing the South, South uh, West Baptist Association. And she mentioned, and this is what uh, got my attention, she said that Baptist churches across the country uh, have been writing to us saying they believe this is what God is saying. Not just since the pandemic, because clearly there are new things happening, even before. And we certainly had that verse before the pandemic as well. And so, therefore, it's a verse that we can embrace for ourselves, but it's a verse across the whole Baptist Union and probably other denominations as, as well, that God is speaking to us and we need to take hold of that and be confident uh, in that. God speaks and he speaks to us uh, today. We had it, we had that verse before the pandemic, but realistically, I had ideas what it might mean, other people had ideas what it might mean, but really we didn't have an idea what it meant, but we knew God was going to do a new thing. And here we are, Christians and the churches they serve in the name of Jesus have had to change, they've had to do new things. They've actually achieved more than probably they thought they could have. They've had to do new things. And when you look just how much has changed, it would have taken us ages to make those dramatic changes. Um, I've been talking uh, with some of the leaders for quite a few years now about social media being a big part of our future and how we would maybe move that forward. But it would have taken a a lot to get us to where we are now. Probably many church meetings. Um, Now YouTube in this, as as I speak, is kind of this is our new normal. Social media and impact and even a wider congregation than we normally do is a new normal. But it does show what can be done when God is doing a new thing and when we put our minds to it. It shows that God can stir up his people even in the midst of sometimes difficult circumstances. Maybe, could I say, even shake us up a little bit into doing a new thing. And it felt right for me this morning to talk a bit about what God might be doing in churches. But what I really felt uh, that I had to say is the question is to ask is, what is God, what is the new thing God is doing in my life? What is the new thing God is doing in your life? We can see the things in the churches and it's brilliant. But what about personally? What is he really trying to achieve at this time? And my sense, certainly for myself, but in speaking to other ministers and uh, many of you, my sense is that he's really drawing us closer to him, to go deeper into him, to really cultivate that relationship with him, which is easy to neglect, to rely on him, abiding in him, walking with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we all know this already. We need this for a healthy Christian life. But it's possible we've neglected it. And and I'm not saying that we've done that intentionally. In in fact, I think sometimes we do it out of good intentions. We're so busy achieving things for God, but we neglect the being. I said that last time. And of course, God, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, if you're trusting him with your future and you receive forgiveness, of course he saved you. 
And if you want to know more about that, you need to come and speak to one of us. But Jesus opened up a way for us to have a relationship with God the Father. And that can only be a work of him. You can't earn that. Um, and this is, not, this is not a sermon that says you can earn uh, uh, the right to that relationship with God. But we were saved for a purpose. And, and the reason is that we're saved for a relationship with God. And there are things in the Bible that make it clear that the relationship that Jesus paid so dearly for you and me to have a, a relationship with God, that the ongoing relationship also asks for a commitment from you. We do have our part to play. And I think this is part of the new thing that God is doing. The passage is interesting. It comes at a time when God's people are in captivity, uh, they're effectively in exile uh, in Babylon, and God gives this message, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? He's given this message of faith and of deliverance and hope for the future. And, and I'd want to say this morning, whatever your circumstances are, whatever situation you find yourself in, good, bad or indifferent, with God there's always a future. Today is plan A. Um, you can't change tomorrow. You can change today. Sorry, you can't change yesterday. But you can change today and it can influence tomorrow. And with God there's always a future. It's worth writing that down. Whatever circumstances you're in, with God there is always a future. I love something I read recently where it said, every time I go to God for forgiveness, he forgives me. Every time that God forgives me, he's basically telling me that he loves me more than he loves his own rules. It's not that he doesn't love his rules. It's not that they're not important, but he loves me more. That's why Jesus paid for when I get things wrong. With God, there's always a future. Now, those people of God in that time, they were probably excited um, that a new thing was coming. And we can get excited. When we hear that first, you get, yeah, you know, emotions. When we feel God saying you'll do a new thing, yeah, you know, bring it on. I'm up for it. Let's go. Equally, there's part of us that says, yeah, it depends what it is. And it depends whether I actually like what he's going to do. We can agree in principle, but when it comes to the reality, uh, the two are not always the same thing. And they'd been in Babylon for so long. Some of them would have been born in that captivity, that that's all they knew. That was their comfort zone. Um, they heard stories about the past and the amazing things that God had done and rescued them from slavery and Moses and the, and the commandments and the, and the waters parting. Brilliant, that's all in the past. But quite comfortable. We're kind of used to what we've got now. And the call to the future was probably exciting for them. But perhaps they had reservations about coming out of their comfort zone as well. There was something new was coming. And something new comes now for each of us personally. Some people will love it, some people hate it. Some people want change, some people want things to stay the same. Some people actively seek change, some people actively run away from it. But God has a promise of a new thing, and it can bring up mixed feelings. But he says, doesn't he, forget the former things. It's not saying they don't matter. I think the key is where he says, don't dwell on them. It's great to remember what God has done, but actually we're in the now. What is the new thing God is doing in me and you? Which he is, which is exciting. And I think there's a need, isn't there? And it's this time, this period has given us time to reflect and think. There's a need to let go, to empty your hearts. Have them open to God in a much deeper way. To see what he's got in store for us as a church, but also for you personally. Making space for something new. He is doing a new thing. We need to perceive it. And I wonder what I have to let go of and what you have to let go of so that God does a new thing in you right now. 
right this morning, in the weeks and months and years ahead? What is he doing in us right now? I believe he's using these times to draw us closer to him because he knows our need for him, but sometimes we can wander. He is close, but we've wandered away. He doesn't give up looking for us. He wants to draw us closer to him. And this time that we've had uh, forced upon us, it feels like to me that we've all had to take a breath. It's almost like the whole earth has you know, just took, took a breath. We've all had to pause. We all had to think differently. We've all had to communicate in new ways, ways that we thought we, we would never be doing. We've all had to slow down. We've all had to travel less. Many of us, not, except not all of us, but many of us have had more time. There's been a realignment of priorities of what and who really matters. We're more appreciative, more thankful. We're not taking people or things for granted. And we're finding different ways of being church and the people of God. And as we take these tentative steps out of lockdown, I really believe it would be a huge mistake to forget some of the lessons that God has been teaching us and to forget those things. But the most important thing is I feel that God is calling me and you to be close to him much deeper relationship with him, a much deeper faith in him. These times have told us we are not in control. Government's not really in control. God is in control. We have to have faith in him, a much deeper reliance on him. As Jesus puts it in John's Gospel, to remain in him. In the King James Version, the word remain, it's translated abide, and it's probably a better uh, translation of the original, this walking with him, abiding in him. John 15 verse 4 in the King James says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. So we can't do it on our own. We have to abide. We have to be in step with. We have to be in relationship and walking with Jesus. Except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. He's saying that you have to abide in Jesus, in God, in God to walk this Christian life. And, and when we do that, we can achieve much. Abide means to live live with, to dwell in, to follow. I abide by the rules, for want of a better, uh, better way of putting it. It's personal. It's to take the relationship with God, who is our source of life, seriously. And John 15 goes on to say that as you remain or abide in Jesus, then you'll bear much fruit. Now, we can look at fruit in various ways, but it could be ministry fruit. But a lot of it is going to be, it's the change in me. I will bear fruit. If we think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, it's, it's the character. So if I abide in Jesus, he's going to change my character. With him, he'll change me so much. There'll be much fruit. Without him, trying to do it in my own strength, I'm going to fall down. In my early days, when I first became a Christian, um, I said a prayer, just really very simple prayer, uh, walking across a park in Upminster, giving, saying, OK, I, I, I'm not sure about a lot of things, but I want to follow you and I want to give my life to you. And I remember going into the dealing room, and I, I knew it's probably wrong to swear, and I'd read a bit of the Bible and everything else, but no one really told me, and I didn't make a deliberate thing of, today, I will not swear. And I can tell you the day before, I was. And then when I got into the dealing room, someone swore and they included the name Jesus in there and it cut through me. And that was because there'd been an inner change. I didn't sit there and think, that should cut through me. It just did. And I found myself saying, do you mind not saying that um, uh, near me? And I was rather embarrassed. And amazingly, they, they did. They were good about it. Um, but no one had told me to, to, to stop swearing or that particular moment. It's something that changed in me. Um, and I noticed as time went on people's faces walking down the street, and I still get this, 
and sometimes they're lostness. They just look hopeless. And I realised that you know, life in all its fullness is only found in God and, uh, and they don't know him. Um, I kind of knew this stuff, but now it was just part of me. I wasn't forcing the issue. And as we go around, if you go around trying to be good, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but if you're trying to do it all in your own strength, trying to change on your own, try and live by the rules. Remember Tom said last week, don't get too religious. You know, if we just see the Bible as a rule book rather than a, a way of life, of course there's rules in there, but it's a way of life. It's God's way of saying, that I've got a better way for you. You can go your own way, but I've got a better way. If we get too legalistic about it, and you're trying to do that without much of God in your life, you're doing it in your own strength, this is what I ought to be doing, we're setting ourselves up to fail, because we need God changing us from the inside, relying on your own strength, ticking the boxes, doing the right things um, in your own strength. It's just too hard. You must abide in Jesus. That's where your source, you're staying close to, staying very close to, and that's where your source is going to come from. It's a decision and it's intentional. And it means then you're not so easily swayed because you're walking in him and rather than thinking, what ought to I do? It will just happen more naturally. And that's what happens. Your heart changes. It's natural. It's not false. You move from the I ought to and instead you say, well, I want to or don't say anything. It just happens naturally. It moves from me facing a situation and having to stop myself consciously and saying, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but consciously saying, what would Jesus do? And then trying to act that out, fine. I'm forcibly applying it to a, to a space and a place where I'm saying, I just am who Jesus would be in this circumstance. And it's not something I can force, it's something that as the more I spend time with him, the more I invest in that relationship, uh, the same way Jesus did with his own father for his own ministry, then it will be a natural outpouring of who he is through me. It's natural. It's the only reasonable and sensible thing to do. Um, and, you know, in lockdown, um, I've noticed a lot of people have become keen gardeners. Uh, I, I haven't. Andrea has done quite a good job in our garden. I've visited a few people, mainly on the leadership, and I've seen their gardens. They look immaculate. And, and they've had time. They've had time to tend the garden, to look after it, to care for it. And, and it's in our Christian spirituality is where we can bear the fruit. It's where life in all its fullness is found. It's where real freedom is found in that walk with Jesus. And if we take, if you want to take your Christian spirituality seriously, and God does give us tools to do this, then we must care and attend it like we would a garden. And then a garden bears fruit and so will we in our character with God. But there's no quick fix, unfortunately. There's no shortcuts uh, at conversion, the decision to follow Jesus, that's all God's work. Of course, you're cooperating with that. But the ongoing transformation relies on our cooperation and willingness to go deeper into God and to abide in him. And I believe that's what he's, he's, he's drawing us to him in these times. I'm going to look at someone who, through sheer force of personality, wanted to have the right heart but was found lacking. A bit of a hero in the Bible. But when God changes him, the heart the heart self becomes natural. It also shows that circumstances can seem dark and hopeless. Uh, there are good times, but I've learned myself recently to embrace those times which are low and maybe not so good. It can be there that God does a deep work. And so in some ways, don't be so scared of them. Uh, you'll face them. They are going to come. We live this lie that life's going to be perfect all the time. It's not. And they are painful, but God is there. And you know, before 
before I went through what I've been going through, I'd have said, please God, don't put me through it. Now, I'm just grateful to him that he's brought me on this journey because I'm learning so much. And sometimes that's in the dark place and God speaks to us. But we're going to talk about Simon Peter. Okay, bit of a hero. So Jesus is preparing his followers. Uh, he's telling them what's about to happen uh, at the cross, the cross where uh, my wrongdoings are paid for. Jesus is going to take it for me. He's going to take it to the cross. It's crucified. He's going to rise again. I have a new life with him. Okay, the cross makes, makes people right with God. Without Jesus and the cross, you are not right with God. And he told them that he was going to be taken and killed. And as he looked into their hearts, he said they would desert him. He said, you're going to run. And he's letting them know beforehand that he knew they would do those things, but he's kind of accepted them anyway. His love was greater. And Simon Peter, you know, brash Simon Peter, he's like, no, 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 I won't, I won't desert you, Jesus. And again, Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he prepares him. He says, look, I'm letting you know. You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. No, no. And now he's going to do it in his own strength because he knows what he ought to be. He says in Matthew 25, 35, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. They wander then from the upper room. They've not listened to what Jesus has said. He knows what they're going to do. In their own strength, they're not going to do that. They won't desert him. They won't deny him. In their own strength, they know what they ought to do. But they wander from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asked them to pray and to watch with him, to stay awake, to help him. And, and then we're told that he's found them sleeping. These are the people that are not going to you know, let him down. And Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He says, Matthew 26, 41, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus sees that the thing in them that was genuinely turned to God, the spirit, but the natural powers of their bodies, the flesh, were not in tune with the spirit, and therefore they were found wanting. They wanted to stay awake. They wanted to be supportive, but they couldn't force themselves. And the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Peter wakes up, and now his natural instinct, um, not spiritual instinct, kicks in. He grabs a sword, uh, acting where the flesh was strong, but not the spirit. He chops off some poor lad's ear. And Jesus rebukes him, even though it was the only thing he knew how to do in the circumstances. And then he and the others did what Jesus had predicted. It says in Matthew 26, 56, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. But, we're told Peter only flees a little. Maybe he is a little bit stronger than the rest of them. And he follows at a distance, Matthew 26, 58. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest to see the outcome. He wanted to see what was going to happen. But it soon becomes apparent that the spirit may have had control of Peter's legs, but not his mouth, because on three occasions, as he sits around to see what would happen, he's challenged about being a companion of Jesus. And each time he denies it. We're told in Matthew 26, 74, he intensifies his denial so much, he began to call down curses and he swore to them that I don't know the man. It's the same person who said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. He now calls down curses from heaven and he swears to them, I don't know the man. And then, of course, the cock crows three times. Peter remembers Jesus said he would deny him, and how he argued because he was so confident in his own strength. And now we're told that as he realises actually he wasn't strong enough on his own, he was told he went out and wept bitterly. He had good and sincere intentions, and even though he was warned a few hours earlier, he wasn't able to withstand the tendencies ingrained in his flesh or his self. But God wasn't finished with him. And God is not finished with me. And he's not finished with you. He's not finished with us. You might feel like it sometimes, but he's, he's never finished with you. He's for you. He wants you. He's drawing you closer to him. And God wasn't finished with Peter. 
God, not Peter, was going to make him his rock on that confession that Jesus said, I will build my church. In the time that follows, Peter is exposed to experiences, really tough ones as well, that don't just inform him, it transforms him. It's now changing him. And remember, it's in sometimes the dark places that happens, the things sometimes we want to run away from, where God is doing a work in us. It transforms him. It draws together all the things he'd gathered from his years of companionship with Jesus on the road. It drives deep into his natural tendencies, bringing about great change, but now it's from the inside. He copes with the death and the manner of the death of his friend, who Peter himself acknowledged was the Messiah, the Christ. He encounters Jesus alive once more, even though he died, and during a 40-day period afterwards, Jesus gives him a new commission. He's restoring him. He says, look, I want you to lead my people. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to follow me. Abide in me. You're going to have to do this with me. Peter now understands that he and the church are to exercise some sort of transcendent power. That doesn't depend on having a kingdom or government in any human sense, as as it's literally God's rule and reign, a God government. And they're called to be participants, as we are now. That power was going to be sent to them in a special way from heaven. This is exciting. See, today I do a new thing. And then for ten days they wait in an upper room. And then what happens? The hand that previously, without thinking, reached for a sword to kill the legs that spontaneously took flight when the going got tough, the detestable tongue that so easily forgot the earlier confession of Christ and denied all relationship to Jesus, cursing God to prove it, now all of those were of an entirely different character. In Acts 1.15, Peter, showing leadership, stands up among the believers. As the promised power pours in, Acts 2 verse 2 says it's filling the room, it transforms Peter. Now his legs aren't running, his mouth isn't cursing. His legs are standing, Acts 2.14, then Peter stood up with the eleven. He's speaking, it says he raised his voice. He's not cursing anymore. He addresses the crowd with boldness. It came naturally to him. He preaches with great effect and now, with God's power, not relying on his own, he does a great work of ministry. It says those in Acts 2.41-47, to those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now he is the rock. Petros, Peter, Jesus is going to build his church. They were so radical in their devotion to God. Now that they've had the infilling of the Spirit and they're walking close, they're abiding, it put them at odds with human governments who thought they were in charge of the world. It's so much so that persecution breaks out, the church is scattered, except, we're told in Acts verse, uh, eight, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostles. Moving forward, there's public attack, there's beatings, there's imprisonment and threat of death. We've moved from the ought-tos to they're just, it's a natural outworking of their ministry now. If they, on, if they were the ought-tos and what I should be doing, they would have run a mile. But none of it moved Peter from his course. He did have some troubling times, he wasn't perfect, but on the whole, his flesh or his self remained strong in line with the spirit. Tradition tells us that when finally he faced his own cross in Rome, he asked to be nailed upside down because he wasn't worthy of dying in the same manner as his friend and Lord Jesus Christ. 
That wasn't an ought to. That was a, that was a sense. In this account, you can see how we can get a glimpse of what is really possible for ourselves. A transformation from self and flesh and natural effort. And of course we need a bit of that, but a transformation from only relying on that to one of restoration of our human life to its proper centre in the spiritual life. The ought to's to the just, it's the most obvious thing I would do, the want to's. And you might ask, is this really attainable? Is this deep spiritual life attainable in life's busyness uh, that creeps up on us and, and, and deters us from spending that time with God? In Galatians 6, verse 7 to 9, Paul, the apostle, talks about you reap what you sow. And remember at the beginning we said we must be abiding. Jesus said this, we must abide in him. If we don't, we'll reap what we sow. If we do, we'll reap what we sow. And so if I've got to ask myself, and you've got to ask yourself, if I truly want to be more like Jesus then I should be doing the things that Jesus did. Uh, Jesus, whenever he had ministry, he always had time with the Father. He always took note of the spiritual disciplines that are in the word of God for us, which we so often neglect. Peter would have, been, uh, would have done the same things because he's had all that time with Jesus. These spiritual disciplines are things that God has given us, that Jesus himself practiced, which in, in, in our lives can be pushed to the side a bit because we haven't got too much time, because we're doing so many things in our own strength that we, we, we go to five minutes over there. If I want to become more like Jesus, I've got to do the things he did, and that's countercultural. What are those type of things? We're not, I'm only going to give you a few, and I'm going to recommend a few books, but it, maybe at some point we'll go through these. But, but fasting, you know, abstaining from food or something, but normally food or a restricted diet, because it, it helps in our prep. We don't know why. Um, I don't know why. Uh, but I'm told that it happened in, in the New Testament uh, it would have been a practice Jesus practiced. He said, when you fast, not if you fast. Um, and it would have been part of his devotional life to God the Father. So fasting. Uh, praying. Uh, more of my reliance on God. Uh, whenever Jesus had powerful ministry, he, he would then say, well, I'm going away alone to be with the Father. Sometimes he was up all night um, because of the ministry coming in the day or what he'd just done. Being in the word of God, it's a discipline. It's enjoyable, but it's a discipline, uh, recognising that God speaks to us through that. Look at the busyness in life, and solitude is one where we kind of try and get it when we maybe have our two-week holiday in the year. I want to sit around the porch, I want to do nothing, I just want to be quiet. But actually, somehow we've got to carve time out to be with God, to listen, to be silent. It's very difficult, but we've got to, we've got to put that first if we're to abide in him. Simplicity. You know, we're trying to make lives a bit more simple. We found in lockdown, actually, things were simple, you know, that we wasn't rushing around so much and, and trying to maybe live a bit more of a simple life, which means we can give more in, uh, financially in service uh, to other people. It's this total reliance on God, time with him, abiding in him, allowing the spirit of God, who is willing, to change myself and my flesh, which isn't so willing, to become the person Jesus wants me to be, which means... It's not that I ought to love, I ought to forgive, I ought to serve, I ought to give. It it just flows out because I'm more like him. It's saying that I want to give up my life as I know it so I can gain it. Where Jesus says, don't hold on to it so much that you lose it. That's where life is found in all its fullness for now. Not just for eternity, but for now. That's where ministry can thrive, not in programs or procedures, not being stuck in the past, but inviting God to do a new thing in me and in you. As I finish, uh, there's a verse 
in my, my dark times that really spoke to me, uh, one of those ones where it leaps out and um, uh, I, I've really hung on to and um, I believe it's right to share this morning. But from the NIV, uh, it says this, from Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the message version is what really hit me. And I love this. And I, it's in my study, and I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to really live this out. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and rightly. Unformed rhythms of grace. Walk with me. Work with me. Abide in him. With him you can do much and he'll do much in you. Without him, very little. And I've been walking with him in some tricky times recently and he's changing me. But he's brought me to this place where I can honestly say, I give up my life, um, but I'm gaining everything. Um, I'm gaining everything. It brought me to a place of total surrender. It's saying, whatever you bring tomorrow, we'll deal with. Do a new thing in me. In me. And the word surrender, and I've asked uh, Roger and Sally and, and uh, uh, Annie and, and Oliver to lead us in this next song. And it's a song that really meant a lot to me and it's, it really spoke to me. It's, this, it's called I Surrender. Now, surrender can be a negative word. I don't like the word surrender. It, it kind of... It kind of uh, evades thoughts of defeat. But surrender doesn't have to be negative. It's a positive. I'm giving up my fleshy life so I can serve him, be with him, life in all its fullness. It means I can be faith-filled, walk with him, be like him, be like him to others, abiding in him. But it really does mean, God, do a new thing in me and be bold enough to say that. So as you listen to this next song, maybe play it over and over, you'll, you'll find it's quite sort of haunting, for want of a better word, but... Very, very powerful. The words go, here I am. So you've got to present yourself. Down on my knees again. That's how I felt recently. Surrendering all, surrendering all. Find me here, Lord, as you draw near. I'm desperate for you. I surrender. Drench my soul as mercy and grace unfold. I hunger and I thirst. With arms stretched wide, I know you hear my cry. Speak to me now. I surrender. I want to know you more. Like a rushing wind, Jesus breathed within. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. Like a mighty storm, stir within my soul. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. I surrender. I surrender. Psalm 42 verse 1 says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. That thirst. God is saying to us and to you personally today, See today I do a new thing. He's drawing you closer. I really believe that. Spend time. Cultivate the garden of your spirituality. See how it will flourish. Practice those spiritual disciplines. There's two books I recommend. One I couldn't get because I'm not allowed in the office. Um, The classic is Richard Foster called Celebration of Discipline. It's a celebration. It talks about those spiritual disciplines and how they can really, really deepen your spiritual life. Um, Interestingly, when he wrote that, I think it's in his foreword, he said he was looking for other books on fasting and stuff and he couldn't find them. 
Uh, so it was a classic, and it's still recommended in colleges. Um, very theological. One which is a bit of a deeper read, um, and you have to really take your time on, but it's excellent, is by a man called Dallas Willard. It's called The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. And the thrust of this is you have your part to play. We may not understand why we have to pray, to fast, to have solitude, uh, to have silence, but somehow God has given us those tools to cultivate the garden of our spirituality as we abide in him. So Richard Foster, The Celebration of Discipline. If you want to go a bit deeper, Dallas, Dallas Willard, The Spirit of Disciplines. So back in the millennium, the planes didn't fall from the sky. The computers kept running. Things went on as they were before. But there will be a significant change coming, and that's when Jesus returns. And we need to be ready for that, and I want to be spiritually ready for that. Uh, as difficult as, as recent life has been, I wouldn't now change a thing. It's, it's teaching me to abide much deeper uh, in God. And I believe that God wants to do a new thing in you. He doesn't want your life to be like the black and white TV. He wants it for you to be in colour, which is life in all its fullness as you abide in him. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for that verse that's been given to us over and over again. And I pray, Lord, you continue to open it to us, to reveal to us, to unlock its real meaning to us today, personally and corporately. I thank you, Lord, that you call us to a deeper relationship with you. I thank you, Lord, that your forgiveness is for all. But equally after that, after we've been saved, we have a responsibility to cultivate our relationship with you. And I thank you, you give us tools to do that. Pray, pray, Holy Spirit, you fill all of us so it's not a burden, but it's a desire. And help us to become more like you. Help people be amazed at the Christian community and what they do. Fill us with your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.